You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we jump into this week's interview, just want to remind you again about Recognize. I've mentioned this before in past weeks, but Recognize is our design anthology that features essays and commentary from indigenous people and people of color. Now, the theme for this year is fresh, and the deadline for you to submit your essay is April the 30th, so it's coming up really, really soon. For more details, including how to submit, as well as our guidelines, please visit recognize.design. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, you can present your work, you can request reviews, you can collect feedback, and you can even give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with product designer and community organizer Becca Markham in Seattle, Washington. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. I am Becca Markham. I am a product designer at Zillow currently and also the community organizer for the Black Designers of Seattle Network. Nice. Talk to me about working at Zillow. Like, What's a a regular day like for you there? Totally. So it it was a little bit more like different than what I like the environment I've been in before. It's like hyper, hyper collaborative in a lot of ways. So whether I'm working with it, like straight up with another designer, or if I'm really collaborating with my content strategist and PM partners, it's kind of like everyone's in the same space. You're in the same building, same floor together. So it's a lot of kind of like walking around and, and chatting with people, but essentially let, you know, a day in of a designer at Zillow is, you know, you get in, you have a fantastic view, the water in Seattle, and then, you know, whether it's going to a stand up or any of those other type meetings, you grab a project, you might have some design critiques throughout the day with partners or other leadership. And honestly, just really just start uh, collaborating on some pretty fun projects. Now, I have to kind of couch this in our current reality of when we're recording this for people that are listening. We're recording this on March 19th. And you mentioned at Zillow the view and it's hyper collaborative and you're working together. <laughs> Seattle is, or at least, you know, a couple of weeks ago was one of the big hotspots for COVID-19. Yes. You know, I'm pretty sure as other cities have taken, you know, suit with this, now they're forcing people to work from home, to socially isolate themselves. What is the vibe like in the city right now? It's been pretty weird. I think especially Zillow because it's, although we do have people who work remotely, it's not really a remote culture. And so it's been a complete change from seeing each other and being in the office like every day with each other to having to 
change everything into like an online experience. So it's definitely been, it's definitely been crazy that restaurants and bars and other places were closed down. Um, so they're only take, doing takeout right now. For us, we've been, um, along with a lot of the other tech companies in the area, like Facebook and Amazon, we've all been working remotely for the last two, two and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. And so it's definitely been, I think there's a level of just stress that is definitely kind of permeating everyone. Like we're in such a lucky position to be able to work from home, but you know, you have people who are small business owners here. You have people who can't work from home and almost like the collective worry for our community has definitely been present. Yeah. How are you feeling with all this going on? I mean, I feel that I was super lucky. I live a little bit outside the city. So for me, I have like a yard I can just go out and escape to without having to worry about social distancing. There's a bunch of stress again, like, you know, over some of the small business owners in the community. For me, I am so addicted to coffee. And so I've made best friends with a lot of the different like coffee shops uh, and roasters in the area and the baristas. And so, you know, just worrying about worrying about them and worrying about how this is going to affect not only the individuals, but then also the companies that the small companies, you know, economically, for me, I was kind of used to working remotely before in a prior job. And so I had a space ready to kind of flip the switch in that way. But it's definitely it's definitely taken a lot of or I'll, I'll just say it's been it's definitely been a transition into trying to work remote with all the stresses that are added on to it. How is the team kind of handling it? I mean, coming from this very hyper collaborative environment to now being distanced in this way, how are they handling it? I think a lot of people are handling it pretty well. We have a massive amount of Slack channels over random things. Like I think the other day, we're just like sending weird childhood photos to each other just to kind <laughs> of, just to bring some of that community online. Uh, in other ways, I think it's been really great to see the team give each other a lot of grace because other folks, like I don't have kids, but a lot of people are at home with their young children. Like Zillow is a very family oriented company. And so we've had many a kid come and do a cameo. Sometimes it was someone's <laughs> puppy. And so it's been fun to almost see each other in their home environments. But even my husband, who's over at Amazon, his one of their senior leadership sent out an email that just said, you know what, guys, we'll be fine. Let's just make sure that we give each other grace in this time because we know things might take longer because there's so much other stuff happening. So let's just be patient with each other mm -hmm. and just like get through it together. Yeah, I definitely think that grace is needed for many of the reasons that you mentioned, uh, you know, going from working in an office to suddenly having to work from home and also not really being able to leave the house. That's a big drastic change for a lot of people that shakes up their routine. It affects them mentally. It affects just the output of work that they're able to do. So it's good that the companies are empathetic enough to say, we know this is a tough situation. We're, you know, kind of not being completely hands-off, but certainly exhibiting some grace in sort of what is a very stressful time. Totally. Yeah. It's definitely been very, very nice to feel like we have that type of support and understanding. Yeah. What sorts of projects are you working on at Zillow? Totally. So I work in the growth and acquisition space for a product called Zillow Offers. And Zillow Offers is, is essentially, it's only 
really available in a few different cities right now, but it's a new product to Zillow. And it's a program where we'll actually buy houses from customers and then also sell them. And so the kind of goal, like the overarching goal in Zillow is to help movers get to where they want to be. And so it's like, however we can make that process easier for them, let's do it. And so the whole premise of our program is that you don't have to do any home showings, you don't have to do repairs, you can essentially just like pack up and leave. And so some of our customers have given like a lot of feedback where people who like, some of them might have been in the military, some were moving for a job, and they just really needed to get to the next place sooner. And so by not having to go through that whole traditional selling process, it removed all those different barriers for them, and they were able to move faster. So that's essentially my product that I work on. Nice. Prior to Zillow, I know you mentioned your husband working at Amazon, but you worked there as well. I did. So I was at Amazon for four years or right around four years, first as a contractor the first few months. And then I went in as a designer, then left as an art director. Funny thing, my husband came in a few years after I did. And when he was interviewing, I was like, hey, hun, why does it say that you're hiring managers on the same floor as me? And he's like, oh, don't worry, I'll be on a different floor. And we ended up being on two very different teams, but being on the same floor for about six months. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we're also we're also pretty used to working in a similar space together. What's it like working at Zillow and, and how is it different from Amazon? Because Zillow is kind of more of a startup, I would imagine, and Amazon is this big kind of corporate behemoth. I mean, it's very different. The, the cultures, if you even look at the leadership principles of the two companies, like they're very, very different. And it's like, it shows up like starkly. For Amazon, it was this like it, this huge, huge, huge company. And sometimes you may not feel like you have like full ownership over a certain product. So I guess scope is a big thing for, for Zillow offers. I essentially own like a whole section of the product. And so what I decide, what I really worked and helped to create just goes up and is the entire thing versus a small piece of it. Mm-hmm. And then I think another thing is Zillow. If you're talking about workplace things, Zillow is much more, I, I feel like a, a, of like a nine to five. And so there is a great work balance there. Like it's been listed on different, I don't know, lists, I guess, as like a top place to work for families. So like, I was really weirded out that people left their computers on their desks and like went away for the evening. I felt like the (laughs) first times I did that, I was like, Oh, I'll like hide it in my little desk drawer. And people were like, No, you just leave it like have that work life balance versus different times for Amazon. It was very dependent on the manager that you had on the project they were working on. So it definitely had a lot more creeping (laughs) as far as your off time. Yeah, that work-life balance is, I found certainly as I've gotten older, it's more and more important to be able to really have that split and that separation. And it feels like now, I mean, to go back, you know, unfortunately to talking about the coronavirus, everyone, I feel like everyone's work-life balance is thrown off now. So oh, it's, absolutely. It's, it's a weird thing because it's now all in the same place and you don't really have a way to separate it. I've found a way yeah. to try to separate it, but like, I mean, that told you before we started recording, I've been working from home since 2008. So I kind of have a pretty good way of compartmentalizing it. But then you just have the all the added stress about everything that's happening outside of your home. And you're like, oh, how do I focus? How do I try to concentrate on the task at hand? So it's uh, 
yeah it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> no I totally I feel like yes it's like right at, at home you have the dirty dishes you have the laundry that hasn't been folded in a week or at least I do uh, you have <laughs> the animals and everything else it's for my husband and I it's like all right who's going to use the office for a meeting and so if you're having a meeting out there and I'm having a meeting in here how are we keeping the animals quiet and it's a whole collection of stuff also like I found it super hard because it'll get to five o'clock, six o'clock. And I'm like, all right, when am I actually going to close my computer? Because I'm not at work and I don't have to leave work on time to be able to hit the commute right and get home. Mm-hmm. It's you're already home. So I definitely have had to like for my own sanity, just shut everything down, put do not disturb on by Slack so that after a certain time in the evening, I'm just not getting those messages. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. Just shut it all down and physically try to go somewhere else, a different mm-hmm. place, a different spot that really does help out. As long as you're in your home, because we're still social distancing. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> so where did you grow up? Yeah, so I actually grew up in two very different places. So my parents had a nonprofit that really focused on just community good. And so I was born in California and spent like really the first nine years fully there. But then I ended up going back and forth to Brazil for a month or two out of the year when I was nine. And then when I was 16, I actually moved permanently there for the last two years of high school. So I so yeah, for, for me, my childhood was very much made up of two very different places, very different cultures. Wow. High school in Brazil. What was that like? Oh, goodness. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was very interesting. So when I first moved down there, I homeschooled for the first year because it's very like a transitional year. And so senior year, I went to a high school that my mom taught at. And it, for me, it was really, really interesting because... My parents, again, were in the nonprofit space. And so my whole life there was working with kids in the slums. Like some of my best friends were ex-street kids. Like that was what I was used to. But then when my mom started working at the high school, because she's a teacher, my sister and I went there for free. And I think my graduating class was 17 people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and those and those kids were essentially the richest kids of the area because I went to an American, like a quote, international or American school. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was kind of also, it also felt like I was straddling two very different worlds when I went to school than I, when I went to like the after school program that I would help run with my parents in the evening. So it was definitely a very, very interesting, interesting experience. When you graduated high school, did you move back to the States or did you stay in Brazil for a while? So I pretty much went straight back to the States. I ended up going to DC for school. So I was at American University for undergrad where I studied film and anthropology. Essentially, I wanted to Uh, I wanted to find a way to tell a story, but then I also wanted to tell it correctly, know how to do the research in order to portray it in the most unbiased way possible. And so I did that double major. So I was in DC for for that. And I stayed about a year after I graduated. And that's when I eventually moved to Seattle. Now, I'm curious about the the storytelling. Being, you know, someone that was going between two different countries growing up, were you kind of exposed to a lot of like art and design that made you want to go into doing film? 
So it actually wasn't really the art. It was just like the stories of the people who I met. I just fell in love with just hearing different people's stories and hearing the way that they saw the world. And so I think straddling those two very different socioeconomic classes made it so that I realized that the other one just had no idea how that how the other, other one lived. And I think especially in Brazil that that stratification is so great and also exists like not only socioeconomically, but also racially. And so for me, I just wanted to kind of tell a story to demystify and de-other a whole kind of group of the population. And so it was actually a project I did my senior year in high school where in art class, we had to do a video project where we'd film it, we edit it and do all this other stuff. And so it was a group thing, but I asked the teacher if I could just do a solo project. And I ended up going and featuring one of essentially that he was kind of like a sibling at that point. I'd met him the first year I got to Brazil when I was nine, he was 10 or 11. And we basically been friends since then. And he had been a street kid or lived on the streets from the time he was six to nine, like by himself with other kids his age. And then he ended up at this, you know, this home for ex street kids. And so for me, I was like, you know what, I just really want to tell his story. I just really want to tell, you know, tell where he came from the amazing kind of just trajectory into this amazing changes that he's actually brought to his life. He started in the slums, but, and living on the streets when he was so young, but now he had been a part of like a a college prep program. Like there was like so much. um, And so like, it was just such an amazing story. So I took my really, really crappy little point and shoot camera and I went and I just interviewed him. I We went to the favela where he grew up and he brought us to his mom's house and we met his siblings. He showed us where he'd actually lived in front, essentially in, fr- in front of a shop where he like slept at night for, you know, the three years he was on the streets. He told stories over like, he is kind of like a hardcore looking kid. He is this Nike scar it looks like a Nike symbol on the side of his cheek. So he looks like it's huge. And so he looked like pretty hardcore. And when you actually talk to him, you realize that, no, he only got that, you know, from falling out of a tree when it was playing. And the only thing he actually stole ever was like a Hershey's bar, but he felt so guilty that he actually left money for them later on. So, Mm. you know, as far as someone looking at him might think and really stereotype him in a certain space, but then the real story was just totally and completely different. So that's one thing I just, I really, really loved. And I actually showed it a little coffee house presentation thing with parents and stuff when I was in high school. And for me, I was terrified because I was really showing this group of the richest people in the city. I was essentially kind of throwing the socioeconomic differences, the racial difference, like in their face. And But then like it showed, I was like in like a cold sweat. But then afterwards, people started coming up to me. They're like, how can we help? How can we do things for him? And so it actually ended up helping him raise money for kind of like an English language like trip over the summer in the US. And so it definitely was, yeah, it made a huge impact, even though it was really kind of the worst meeting. Yeah, like it was really bad video. It was the audio is terrible, but the story really came forward. And I just saw the impact that it could have. Wow, that's quite a story. Do you still keep <laughs> in contact with that kid? I do. I do. Yes. He's definitely one of those folks who 
just became very much like siblings. And so now he's living in Brazil again, him and a few others. Like it's been really great to see how they kind of grew up and then are helping people who were in a similar situation. Mm -hmm. And so like another person who I knew around the same time, all that he does is really go to the streets and really try to build relationships with other kids who live on the streets or in the favelas to essentially try and be like a catalyst for some change in their lives. Nice. So let's go back to the time when you're leaving American University and you're about to head out to Washington. Was that a a big change in terms of time or did you have kind of a few design gigs between there before you made the move? Uh, So in D.C., I didn't get into design until a lot later on. Uh, I think it was my like last two or three quarters of school. I essentially I, I. realized that if I was going to be some like starving documentary filmmaker, I'd have to learn how to make my own poster. And so I took a design class, ended up really liking it, and then went from there. So at first there was some, I was able to mix it up with some of the storytelling internships I had. I had actually ended up doing a small animation and putting it up for a, it was some type of like a awards thing at my school and actually won best of new media. And the the prize of that was an internship at a design company. So that was my first kind of design gig was me in a small basement <laughs> making a lot of different illustrations for one of the Smithsonian's. And so mm. I don't even think they actually ended up using it. I think they went totally different direction after I left. But that was, I think for me, a great experience, just learning, learning from the designers there, but then also learning a new program. I basically try to do as many kind of small, just contracting stuff or freelance gigs. It was very nice having parents who were in the nonprofit sector because they always needed marketing work. So a lot of the early things I had was just making some marketing materials or teaching materials for them. So that definitely gave me a lot of practice. And then for me, it was a lot of like, because I really didn't know what a good designer was, especially like what a good junior designer was. I really was just looking at different people's portfolios online. I was looking, I was going on like design inspiration and also like Pinterest trying to find designs I really liked. Mm -hmm. And so I just gave myself projects that I could just like try and like emulate the style or something of just to try and build that portfolio out. That's a really good idea. I I tell people that a lot, you know, in terms of how do they find some kind of project or thing to work on that lets them do a lot of different skills? I'll tell people, you kind of have to make it yourself. A lot of those opportunities don't just come to you pre-made. So if there's something that you're really passionate about, turn that into a project and work on it and like, let that be Mm -hmm. the thing that you help kind of build your skills up for. Yeah, totally. Like some of it, like for my parents, they would want, I don't know, presentation slide. And I was like, you know what? It might be better as an animated video. So I would just work through animation skills well and learn animation while making them a video. Or I know there was a big wave of popularity for like minimalist movie posters and stuff. And so I was like, you know what? What are my favorite movie posters? Or what are my favorite movies? Let me just make a few posters for these different TV shows. Like how would I take this concept and then do it in my style or 
like really anything else. So yeah. it definitely helped to build that out. And people actually loved seeing all these little like passion projects when I first got started. So like at first I was worried that I wasn't showing like professional work, but people really, really tended to enjoy just seeing that I had that that excitement for what I was doing and the passion to actually just go off and do it on my own. Yeah, absolutely. Those are skills that employers, and I would say even people that just want to work with you on a collaborative basis, they want to see that passion because honestly, the skills are, I hate to say transferable, but they kind of mm-hmm. are like, any, you know, there's a lot of people <laughs> that can work in Photoshop or sketch or what have you and make something that looks really nice. But is it something they're passionate about or are they kind of just, uh, you know, like an adequate set of hands that are able to put something together, you know? No, totally. Yeah. So we've had a couple of people on the show who have moved to Seattle and they've often talked about the Seattle freeze, <laughs> which for those that are listening is kind of this, uh, I don't know, I guess you could call it a welcome- constant social distancing. <laughs> yeah, constant social distancing. We'll say that. When you first moved to Washington, did you experience any of that? Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, I'm from California where you just call someone up when you're on the way to their house or like, hey, let's go grab something to eat right now. And then in Brazil, it's like a very kind of warm culture. You're always hugging people, doing kisses on the cheek, all that stuff. And then in DC, there's still that environment if you're heading to like the Southeast where mostly black people. And so people are always like talking to each other in the grocery stores and, you know, everything else. And then you come here and it's like, crickets. It was definitely hard in the beginning, just trying to like break into a field that I had no idea like how to break into while also trying to deal with like, what is networking? How is networking not awkward? Also, like, how do I actually build both connections and friendships in a place that is known for being very cold. So I I would say that Seattle's been practicing for the social distancing for a while. (laughs) (laughs) So in some ways, we're a little ahead of the curve on that. Now, you did a recent interview with uh, another podcast called Designer and Designer. And you were talking about, you know, your experiences, you know, working as a black designer, working on design teams, but often being the only one. I can only imagine like, one, you're coming to this new city, where people may not be super hospitable. And then you're also working in a place where you're the only black person there or the only minority there. Like, what did that feel like in those first few, I guess, months or so when you were in Seattle? Did you feel like you had a community that you could turn to? Honestly, no. Like for my husband and I, we moved to Seattle without really knowing anyone. And so for uh, it was a very, very isolating experience. And I was also like to add insult to injury, I was freelancing when I first came here. I was still trying to build that portfolio Mm -hmm. and find a job because we were able to move with his job, but I was still looking for one. And so it was absolutely like isolating. I would go to networking events and there would be no one who looked like me there. I would go to like open houses at different design firms or anything else. And it would be like, I would be the only me in the space. And I mean that I would like to say that that changed a lot, but throughout like the first time I got, got as like a marketing assistant or production designer to like the time that I spent at Amazon, it was, I had not worked with another design, like black designer in that entire time. Wow. And now was this the impetus behind you starting 
Black Designers of Seattle? Yes, in a lot of ways. So as a designer, I kind of like had always heard of the like other like elusive black designer like somewhere in the company like there was always like a d- another one you just <laughs> didn't know them but they're out there somewhere but then i ended up getting promoted to art director and then i started looking around and i was like wait a second like where are the other art black art directors and like no one really knew where they were and so like i did it i did some digging and i was like all right I like was able to find one other black designer in like the entire company. And so I think I started to realize at that point that the thing that I was experiencing wasn't just my story, but it was evidence of a larger, you know, of a larger trend. And so from there, like at before starting the group, I actually had only known two black designers. One of them was my little brother. <laughs> and so like he barely <laughs> counts. And so after I essentially just started to reach out to other black designers like that I knew or could find technically like within the company, I was like, all right, I think there's like a few of us because I've heard about you, but I'm actually going to like make the effort and reach out now. And then I just started doing that on the larger LinkedIn scale, going through many pages of designers in Seattle being like the filter and trying to find other folks in other companies. See, I'm so glad you mentioned LinkedIn because people will often ask me how I find people for Revision Path. And they're always surprised when I tell them I look on LinkedIn first. Like oh, I look totally. at someone's yeah. connections and look at their connections and try to sort of, you know, find who I think might be a good fit or who might be a good guest and reach out to them. You know, people sleep on LinkedIn. I mean, I've long since deactivated Facebook. I mean, LinkedIn is mm-hmm. kind of where I kind of, that's where I sort of am now these days in terms of social stuff. But how is the group going so far? It has been insane. It's grown so much. Like I mentioned, at first, it was just me. I had a Google sheet of all the different like bios of people I was finding who are Black designers in the city. So I just called it my Black Designers Black Book. <laughs> and <laughs> so I had essentially just been reaching out to people. I was like, you know what? We just need to have a happy hour. So like a year and a quarter ago or so, I just reached out to 35 people that I was able to find. I was like, hey, I'm Becca. We're going to meet up. Like, let's all meet up at this day, this time, this place. And I was kind of expecting for it to only be me and like one other Black designer that I had, you know, gotten to know over the course of me, like finding people. Mm -hmm. But then like 25-ish people showed up and all of us were shocked. Like all of us were like, wait, there is this many Black designers in Seattle? Like period? Like what? And so that was amazing. And then since then, we're actually... So we have a LinkedIn group, and I think we're around 75 strong at this point. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. It's definitely been like a very kind of crazy, exciting thing to actually start to find and build that community. Have you heard of the Bay Area Black Designers Group? I have. I have. I have actually been really bad and not reached out too much to them, but it's definitely on my to-do list. Maybe know, with all this extra time. <laughs> yeah. So I know the woman who started it, Kat Veos. She's been here on the show before. And then also Kendall House, who is, I think he now heads up the group, but he's also been on the show as well. And just recently, I'd say maybe a few weeks ago, we had Fonz Morris, who's a growth design lead at Coursera, who also kind of spoke really super passionately about kind of the group and how helpful it was and everything. But I've also spoke to some Seattle designers who 
honestly spoke super highly of you. Oh, wait. Yeah, just a, few, just a few weeks ago, we had <laughs> Tim Allen on the show, who's VP of Design oh, at Airbnb. Yeah. And then Timothy Bardlevins, who's at Microsoft, was like, oh, you're oh, going to be interviewing yeah. and talking to Becca. Oh, my God. So <laughs> the work that you're doing is definitely being seen by people and being congratulated out there in the community. So that's great. Oh, it's funny. Well, okay. Funny story about Tim. He's actually now at Facebook. He was, and between that, between Microsoft and Facebook, he was at Zillow. So mm-hmm. he actually is the one who pulled me over to Zillow. Oh, really? Yeah. Look yeah. That. <laughs> small world. <laughs> it is a very small world. So how long has the group been going on now? Just about a year and three months, honestly. So it's been the first year we were really, really, really focusing on like just getting each other together and like having sporadic happy hours. We had one big event uh, the first year. And then this year, we're kind of focusing on how we can actually start to bring some order to the madness and have, you know, consistent events. But yeah, we're, we're definitely still in an in infancy. Wow. I know there's a group in Seattle, you may have heard of it, called Here Seattle. Have you heard of them? I don't think I have. I do not think I have. So Here Seattle is a, I guess it's more geared towards tech. I'm not 100% sure. But I know that four guys run it. Seth Stell, Todd, I'm, I'm complete, Todd Bennings, and two other people who I, I can't recall. But I know that they do something not necessarily similar to what you're doing with Black Designers of Seattle because you're focusing more on design. I think for them, they focus more on kind of DNI and tech in general. And mm-hmm. so design sometimes ends up being kind of a subset of that. Mm-hmm. But that might be a group worth, you know, reaching out to to connect with here in Seattle. Totally. Yeah, it's been it's been really amazing. I feel like this year I've really started to connect with other groups like that. Like there's a few other ones who are doing similar things. And so like as we are kind of like upping our cadence on events, it's been fun to see kind of like who we can partner with, who have like similar initiatives. Mm-hmm. And then also how we can then go back and reach out to the community. Like there's a few arts-based organizations that work with K through 12 schools in the area. And so it's like, how can we actually like come together as a community, as a group, and then start to help out these other, these other organizations as they do stuff. I really want to make it back up there to Seattle one of these days. You should. I mean, well, Hey, once this global pandemic thing, (laughs) (laughs) Once this whole thing blows over. I will not come and see you. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to try to make it back up there. I was talking to some people at AIGA Seattle, like right before all of this COVID-19 stuff broke out about possibly coming up there and doing a live show. But I feel like now everything is sort of canceled until further notice. So yeah, in the future, I definitely do want to make it back up there. I've been to Seattle only once. I was in college This is actually sort of a funny story. So I was in college studying math, and my junior year was when 9-11 happened. And when that happened, I had zero prospects lined up for jobs because the scholarship program that I was in, I was interning at NASA. And so I was thinking, as soon as I graduate, I'm going to go work for a NASA facility, and that's what life is going to be. But then 9-11 happened. They pulled the funding from the program, and now all of a sudden, it's my junior year of college. I have no job prospects lined up. So I started sort of worming my way into these different interview books, which like different departments would have like books that you could sign up for, put your resume in, and you would interview with certain companies. But it had to apply to whatever your mm-hmm. major was. And for math, they didn't have that. They were just like, oh, you should go to graduate school. 
And I'm like, I don't really want to go to grad school right now. I've been going to school for like 15 years in a row. I don't really want to <laughs> continue to do that. And they're like, oh, well, yeah. I don't I don't know what to tell you. So I kind of snuck my way into the computer science department, got in good with people there and managed to get into an interview book there. And I did an interview at Microsoft. And mm. I remember that being like, you know, they talk about these like techie interviews always being something that kind of throw you for a loop. Like Google, I think at one point in time, there was a rumor about there being this infamous one question, like one interview question. That oh, they asked gosh. Me. And when I interviewed with Microsoft, they did that. So I remember, oh God, I, I don't know if she's still there. I remember her name was Cheska. That's all I remember is that her name was Cheska. <laughs> and we did the interview and she asked me only one question, which was, how would you design an alarm clock for a blind person? Oh my goodness, Tim asked me the same question. Are you serious? <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. That's a that's a big coincidence. But yeah, she asked me that question and, and I'm like, huh. And you know, she like slides over a piece of paper and a and a pen is like, you know, just like talk through it. Like talk through how you would do it. And um and, and keep in mind, this is what year was this? <laughs> this was two thousand one, maybe two thousand two, I think it was two thousand two because it was right before I graduated. So this was two thousand two. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is way before Siri and Alexa and what have you. So I'm trying to think about, well, voice this and and you could, you know, do the commands and all this stuff. And I like write it out, sketch it out. And she's recording all this. And so she's like, oh, OK, thank you so much for coming in. We'll be back. To you. And I'm like, wait, is that it? That, that was the only oh. question. <laughs> but but I did get an interview at Microsoft based off that question. So they flew me up to Seattle and I wow. remember the way that they did it was sort of this like, almost like a game show. Like you did the first interview and if yeah. you passed the first interview, you went to the second one and then the second to the third, third to the fourth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was all day, like maybe yeah. from like 9 a.m. Like- to about 7 p.m. or something. And I was losing steam somewhere in the sixth interview. <laughs> I, I remember they were asking me about Notepad and how would you change Notepad if you were someone that wrote in a language that went right to left instead of left to right. And I don't know what my mm. answer was, but it clearly was not the right answer because I didn't make it to the next interview. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that's... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, tech interviews are definitely... They're, they're very legendary as far as being an incredibly long day. So I've, I've done interviews at... I went through the process of Facebook. I've been, you know, was at Amazon, Zillow. It was all kind of like pretty much the same in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But with Amazon, I was actually like, after I contracted, I kind of was thinking that the, my team who was contracting with wasn't going to hire full time. So I actually started talking to another team at Amazon and so they decided to put me through the loop. And then my team found out, I was like, Hey, just FYI, like they'll reach out to you to see about my performance and stuff. And so they actually hurried up their hiring process, then joined my loop. So I was actually interviewing with two different teams on the same day in the same room. And so that just like made my interview process even longer. I think I had like seven back to back, like interviews or something crazy. It was like so much addition to like the portfolio review at the beginning. It was yeah, it was a very kind of like in the same way a very, very long day. Wow. I didn't know that that interview question is something that was still being thrown around (laughs) in that way. That's wild. Yeah, no, Tim. Yeah, Tim, actually, when I went over to Zillow, he handled the 
the whiteboarding and product thinking session um, or part of the interview. And he did ask me, he was like, you need to, I think he added complexity. He's like, all right, you need to design an alarm clock for a blind person that only has one button. Mm. And so like, there was like, I couldn't do voice. I couldn't do like, oh, there's like a, you know, a tactile interface. It was supposed to be like, like an analog alarm clock. So part of like the beginning of that conversation was like, wait, what? It's like, just like an old one that you like your grandparents would have with red numbers. And he's like, yes. And then I had to like essentially just whiteboard that out. So, but I find it so hilarious that you also got that. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I remember, I, I'm trying to remember how I answered the question. I think I said, I was saying something about like eye tracking because yeah. the person is, no, wait, no, wait, not eye tracking because the person is blind. I said something about doing a lot of voice prompts. I remember mm. that. Something about voice prompts and being able to sort of talk through how this would go. So you'd have to have some kind of like conversation flow chart of how to like set the clock and all this sort of stuff. And then maybe it would have some type of a, uh, a haptic feedback because you would be able to touch it. So maybe not necessarily mm -hmm. Braille, but like a series of vibrations or something like that to let you know that, you know, certain commands are being done properly or things like that. This was so long ago up here. I mean, they liked it, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't enough for me to, you know, actually get a job there, but that was years and years ago. I mean, 2002, I also interviewed for real player that year and like no one used okay. a real player anymore so <laughs> unless you know how far back how far back that was um, oh i love that they're using it like 18 years later though yeah. or at least tim, tim is using it 13 years wow. so much later so now you're also in grad school is that right at the university of washington yes i am how's that going it is going well. I actually took this quarter off just to, you know, with, there's a lot of changes at work. So I decided to really try and focus in on that. And so it's been going really well. I essentially went back to grad school because I saw the, the lack of black designers. And I was like, all right, like, can I not only build a community, but also do some research and actually find out why that's the case. And so I also was thinking that people are also a lot more willing to open up to someone as like a grad student, if I'm a grad student versus like, mm. hey, I'm an art director at Amazon asking you these questions. And so I was also kind of very aware of like my own positioning going into like actually, you know, going to folks in different companies and asking what their experience was. Um, being a student definitely helped me ma maintain a certain level of, I don't know, they were just weren't scared of me. <laughs> and so, but also like it gave me that space to do that research and then to start exploring things and then also have it like not directly associated with my day-to-day -day job. So, mm. I mean, it's, it's gone great for one of the first projects that I did was like a quick and dirty research over, you know, why there's no black designers, like where they are. And then I was actually like, okay, like if, if there's no black designers, you know, whether it's because of culture, socioeconomics, you know, just our racial history here in the U S what can we actually do to, to start to change that and change that story. And so part of that solution was like building a community because I, I feel like there's a lot of people who are like super excited about giving back to the community as far as, like, oh, I want to go volunteer for an arts-based organization or, oh, I want to go like be a mentor for folks, but people don't know where to go for it. 
And so I was like, so my thinking was if I build a community, then I'll bring a lot of passions into a certain space. And from there, people can then organize. And so, and like start to have these like larger conversations. And so really like the first event that I ended up doing over at Amazon last August was like a direct result of some of the research and solutioning that I did as part of one of those classes. Mm. That's interesting that kind of, you know, the work that you're doing with Black Designers of Seattle kind of, in a way, came out of the research that you're doing at grad school. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, definitely did. I mean, that was like the whole reason I wanted to go back. I think a lot of times I just wanted the accountability of actually doing the research, of actually like having time set up, set aside to really focus on this, uh-huh. uh, on like design and, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, and so really like going to school, having classes I would, I would essentially pick to really fit a need that I saw in my own journey as I explore diversity and design and all that stuff. And so like, as I, as I went, I was like, all right, this will really be, really be good for this. That will be good for that. And so I really kind of try to pair up what I needed in the real world with the classes I was taking. So those projects and those outputs from those classes would be immediately like applicable. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, some of your research? Like, I'm curious to know what you, you have found from sort of researching the lack of black designers in the industry. Totally. So A big part of what I was doing was just trying to like capture and just hear the stories of current black designers and how they got to design and all that stuff. And so a lot of designers I found like didn't go to school for design. It was in that pretty much correspond with a lot of my research where uh, a huge percentage of African-Americans, blacks in the U.S., when they go to college, they're right now in our generation, they're first generation. Mm-hmm. And so their parents didn't go to college. And so if you have like 40% of those folks going to college, they're probably not going to go for an arts degree. Like if their parents and their community are really sacrificing to get them to college, they're not like, oh yeah, I'm going to go for quote an arts degree. Yeah. It was like, I'm going for finance or business or something along those lines. Cause there's the larger kind of view of design is that, a business degree will get you where you want to go economically. Whereas like an arts degree, historically, it's like, oh, you're doing an arts degree. So you're going to wait tables or something. Like when I (laughs) even went to film school, I got some side eyes from some people being like, oh, really? Like, are you sure you want to go to, you know, film school? Like, really? Like, you're not going to make any money. But it's, you know, the the perception of design, just even within our community is, can be so different. Whereas now, because I did get an arts degree, and then I am also in the position I am now, I'll go home and then I have aunts, uncles who are like, oh my gosh, you should really talk to your little cousin who draws. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like abstractly, because like, they could be a designer too. So like their perception of success has definitely changed just by seeing someone go through it. Yeah, I always will say on here, like, you can't be what you don't see. So being Mm -hmm. able to kind of see someone else that looks like you in a position like that really makes such a big difference in knowing whether or not this is something that you can actually do for yourself. So yeah, I I feel where you're coming from. Totally. What lessons did you learn this past year? Like, how do you feel you've grown and improved? I feel like even though I started a community of Black designers, I feel like I didn't really realize the benefits of it 
And like right now, just seeing how there's like subgroups that have come off of the Black Designers of Seattle community, I've just really, I think I've seen and really just like loved and been and been built up by like a huge group of people. Like even in this social distancing time, I was just texting a group of folks who I met through the Black Designers of Seattle Network because on Monday, we're all going to like get together and like drink wine over FaceTime. (laughs) And so it's, it's just been a really, I think like the importance of community is one thing I've really realized. And also it doesn't take much to have an impact. You just got to do something. Like you just have to give life, whatever, just like something to work with. Like when I first started the community, I was like, I can't organize a bunch of stuff, but I can tell people to show up at a restaurant where I'll just, or at at a bar where I'll make a reservation. And so that was like, honestly, like the bare minimum that anyone could really do. And like that small thing had like a huge impact. And so I think just doing something has really been big. Like even when I was first trying to get into design, like I was so paralyzed by like the amount that had to be done, but like just by doing like little things, like finding that design I really liked, then, you know, emulating it, I like was able to like take small steps into like, into the place that I I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. I guess other than that, I've, I was at Amazon for four years and I've been at Zillow for around, I think six or seven months now. And I have definitely just enjoyed being in a different space, learning fully different things, kind of being out of my element. I think just in that I kind of forgotten because I was on the same team for about four years, like what that was like, but I definitely see like huge benefits because of it. So I think that was more like a reminder. What do you spend time on when you're not working? Yeah, my husband and I, we actually recently bought a Sprinter van that we're tricking out. It's kind of like pit my ride for vans to, to make it more like adventure vanny. So I'm like, not only like the only one sometimes of my being black, like at work, not so much anymore at Zillow, but I'm also like the only black chick in the forest usually. So oh. I do a lot of rock, I do a lot of rock climbing, mountain biking, camping and all that stuff. And so right now, you know, we've been uh, using the time that we would normally be commuting, just trying to build out our van. So like a bed's going in there, kitchen's going in there, little bathroom's going in there. And so we've just been doing a lot of like woodworking and all that stuff to get that together. Nice. That sounds like a really cool project to work on. It's really fun because like being a digital designer, you have, I can build out like a CAD model of what I want the van to be, what I want like a small house project to be, Uh but then like actually like getting wood, getting like metal, like whatever else and actually just physically building it is like a whole nother level of of fun. And also with everything that's happening now, great timing. (laughs) I know, right? great timing yeah. because i mean it's one thing to be socially you know distant in your own home but like if you have a van now that you can at least kind of go around to other places get some fresh air and stuff that's a benefit yeah no it, it definitely is like it's a little kind of rugged rv is what it essentially will be and so there's a lot of places where it's like well we have a full kitchen we don't need to go say hi to anyone we don't need like i can do my coffee here my lunch here everything else so we've definitely been scoping out different like state parks, national parks in the area and trying to find what's open Mm -hmm. because it's like, oh yeah, we could like go to, I don't know, 
like Yosemite and social distance or something and just be in our own space. We wouldn't drive that far because that's like 18 hours, but (laughs) being able to like have or feel like that freedom is is possible has been nice. Nice. So one of the kind of ongoing themes that we have here on Revision Path for this year is equitable futures. I got this idea actually last year. I went to a conference at Harvard called Black in Design. And one of the sort of things that they were talking about a lot was, you know, Black people in the future, like where do we see ourselves, et cetera. You know, we're coming up on 2020. That's a very kind of big futuristic year as people think about that with pop culture, et cetera. So how are you helping to build a more equitable future through the work that you're doing? I think a big thing facing like black designers in Seattle is, or just in general is awareness. And so a lot of like in building community is just increasing that awareness, both of like each other, but then also different jobs. Like it's been really great to be able to connect someone who is just trying to get into design or they're super young, just out of college, trying to find a mentor and connect them with someone who is very established in that field and to build that relationships there to start kind of like helping each other get to the places that we want to be. So I think just providing opportunity is is a big part of what I've been focusing on. Mm-hmm. But then also a lot of my role with with a group has not only been like the community organizing, but also the event organizing. And that's been mostly on kind of the the community plus allies or like community plus conspirators is like what I like to call it, <laughs> uh, where we not only have like the Black Designers of Seattle community, but we also have other folks from, you know, the diversity inclusion space and then also the wider community in some ways. And so I think just like having discussions around being the only black designer and all that stuff in that space is super, super important. So like, I think just having that discussion on a larger level and just like building awareness of this is a problem. Like if you only have one black designer, that is an issue. Like you should be focusing on having a diverse workplace, both like not just racially, but age-wise, socioeconomically, everything. And so I think just creating spaces for those conversations to happen is one of the other ways I'm trying to help contribute to a more equitable future. Nice. Well, it's 2025. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Oh, that's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of like, I'm I'm not sure. I I feel like so much of my life has like, if you asked me five years ago, where I saw myself, where I would see myself now, it's so completely different. Like it's so very different. And And I've just been really enjoying that journey. I really hope that five years in the future, our community is not just larger, but it's, you know, it's also has greater impact. I hope that there's, I'm in a place where I'm able to like see the community be a space where people are going to find mentors or mentees and finding different ways to get involved with like schools and stuff, or just having awesome conversation. I think for me personally, I don't know. I I, I definitely love being a designer. I don't think I want to be a manager. So that's (laughs) definitely not in there, but Mm -hmm. uh, just having like a larger scope on projects and just really being able to think like have a position where I'm able to strategically really kind of look at the future of a project would be super exciting. And hopefully by then my van is done and I'm just traveling around (laughs) in some ways working from the van from a lot of awesome locations. Nice. 
Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Totally. So my website is RebeccaMarkham.com and I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram at, at Bex. And also there's a Black Designers of Seattle group, both on Facebook and LinkedIn. It's just Black Designers of Seattle. So it should be super searchable. Nice. Well, Becca Markham, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. When I first heard about you, it was actually, I mentioned this during the designer and designer interview. I first heard about you when I heard about the group and I was like, I got to have her on the show because I, I feel Aww. like there's more of a story there. And so getting to you know learn more about how you grew up and the work that you're doing right now, and, and even with the work that you're doing through the group that you started, Black Designers of Seattle, if there's two things that really stick out to me. One is that one, you know, building authentic community is something that is super important super important for you, but I think also just super important for all of us, but also really kind of owning your identity is what has made you such a unique person and has made you someone that people are kind of flocking to. So I really, you know, applaud the work that you're doing behind BDS. If there's anything that I can do or anything that Revision Path can do, definitely let us know. This is more of the kind of community stuff that we really need to see. Like take us, I mean, even in the midst of coronavirus, take us from online (laughs) to offline, but being able to foster that community is something that's really important. And I'm glad that, you know, you're really kind of able to shepherd the cause. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Big, big thanks to Becca Markham. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Becca and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.